we have any kids in here, you guys are dismissed to children's ministry. So you can meet uh, Ricky right over there. That's awesome. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 24. Uh, but before we get there, let me kind of explain a few things about what will happen over the next couple weeks. Um, if you've never been here for a summer at the branch, uh, welcome. They are way different than when college students are normally in town and uh, mooching off of everything we do. So just, was that out loud? Just kidding. Um, but no, seriously, we, we love college students. That's why we're here. Um, but obviously college students go home. And so summer is more of an intimate time. It's a sweeter time together. It's a little bit more communal because we're not so big. And um, so just, just be forewarned, though, that we might be changing some things up. Um, typically over the summers, we move into a smaller room over on the side. But we were fearful that we might not fit this year. Um, but we might try it out, too. So just, yeah, it's just a Pandora's box. Who knows what you're going to get when you come on Sunday mornings here. Um, but we love the summer. Another thing we love to see, or I love to see, is um, just some other guys up here teaching. Uh, multiplication is a huge deal for us. As most of you guys know, we have a church plant in Milledgeville that starts in seven minutes. And we also have a church plant in Kennesaw that's part of our network. Um, and so we're serious about raising up and multiplying, sending out guys. And so um, Peter, Daniel, both of those guys are getting their first shot. We've got Steve Dupree. Uh, over here. He'll be preaching. Carlton will be preaching. Um, of course, Dylan will be preaching. I think Ricky will be preaching. Um, so there'll be a ton of different guys up here, which I just love to see. And, and I love that that's the culture we've created. Um, so after this Sunday, you won't see me up here for four weeks. Um, part of that is just some rest. Part of it is other give, give some other guys a shot. I'm able to go preach at Kennesaw. Uh, but then part of it is just projects. So next week I'm taking the whole week to just work on sermons. So no meetings, which I'm a crazy extrovert, so I'm a little nervous about how that's going to go. Uh, if you read some, somebody just slaughtered animals in the woods, that was probably me. I just lost my mind um, because I wasn't around people. So um, the thought is to go get a cabin or somewhere quiet and just write sermons. Um, so next week we're, we're ending Luke today. Next week we're jumping into the attributes of God, uh, which will be a fun summer series. And then we're going to work our way through the Old Testament um, in the fall. So that's all that I'll be preparing for. Sound good? So here we are, the end of Luke. So uh, Peter alluded to it. Uh, Ricky stole all my thunder last week, if you're here for that. Uh, all the things I was going to say about Luke, he just kind of ruined. But um, here's kind of where we've been. For those that don't know, we started teaching through the book of Luke on September 18th of 2016. So just kind of give a framework for now. We take the summers off. We take Advent off. We take a little bit of August off to do some, some church ecclesiology. Um, but since September 18th, 2016, um, that's been over 87 sermons that we've been working through. Uh, just to kind of put things in perspective, while that has been happening, while that's been taking place, um, we've gone from an average of 50 to 60 to an average of 150, 160. Uh, we've seen in this time span that we've been working through the book of Luke, we've seen about 18 baptisms take place. And, and I'm not telling you this to go, oh, look how great we are. I'm only boasting in the supremacy of Scripture, that we strongly believe here that if we open the Word, if we faithfully preach it, if we talk about it, if we discuss it, if we read it together, God's going to grow His church. It's not our responsibility to do that by clever metrics or gimmicks or games. Uh, God has given us one thing to do as pastors, and that's to preach the gospel, to preach the 
the word. So we are confident. One of the things that like I will fight you over, not literally, but um, because vengeance is from the Lord, but I will point you to scripture over is the word does the work, man. Like, like we don't have to do this. And we don't have to be these skilled communicators. I've already messed up and talked about slaughtering animals in the woods. That wasn't in my notes. I'm sorry. I don't know where that came from, right? Peter, Daniel, all these guys giving their first shots, but, but it has nothing to do with the skill of man or how great orders we are. If we just let the word do the work, it does. That's the confidence we have. So that's why we spend three years in one book of the Bible, right? So if you'll flip back to Luke chapter one, I just want to read one thing to kind of set us up for this morning. Going all the way back to, to what is the point of the gospel of Luke? What are we after? Because most people don't know because it was three years ago. Well, we were on pace to teach through the book of Acts. That's where we were going. That's what I thought was going to happen. I was reading commentaries, getting ready for it. And about two months before we started, I said, ah, I think, I think we need to go back. I think we need to do Luke. And uh, obviously the Lord has uh, ordained that. But it's been three years. The thing that keeps, have y'all seen Forrest Gump? Okay, that's, that's what I'm feeling like. I'm a little tired now. I'm just gonna go home. Like, that's, that's what I feel like after teaching through 24 chapters. Um, Luke chapter one, we're gonna pick it up in verse one. And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having following, followed all the things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theopolis, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught." So all Dr. Luke was trying to accomplish, he wasn't a disciple, he wasn't an eyewitness, all he was trying to do is to compile all these eyewitness accounts to give certainty concerning the things of God and what God had accomplished. And so this morning, what I'm gonna try to do in under 40 minutes um, is finish up, we're gonna finish up chapter 24 and understand what that is, but then try to put a big bow on this entire book. What is the certainty concerning the things of God that Luke wanted us to know, and, and how does that change the trajectory of where we are? And then we'll shut the book and we'll pray and uh, we'll start a, next, a new series next week. But um, flip back now, we've read chapter one, flip back to Luke 24, I'll pick it up in verse 36. 36 through 53 is the last verses that we have and then uh, like I said, we'll try to put a bow on this series as much as we can. Luke 24, we're going to pick it up in verse 36. Luke 24, verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said these things, he showed them his hands and his feet. Verse 41. And while they're still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of boiled fish and he took it and ate, them, ate it before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written, 
that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, verse 47. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon, upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with the power on, from on high. Verse 50, and he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, be, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into the heaven and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. So let's pray. Oh, Father, we have read now the whole gospel account of Luke. Father, we've seen your life play out from a mere spoken word from an angel and now your ascension. And so, Father, as we study this text together for one more time, would you open our hearts to see the, the miracles taking place, Father? Would you open our minds to understand what you're teaching us and, and what you're trying to get us to learn and model? God, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving this to us so that we can have certainty concerning you. It's your name we pray, amen. So if you're new here, the way we kind of work through, when I'm teaching at least, is we read a little bit of passage, talk about it, read a little bit, talk about it. If you don't have a Bible, there's some, yep, there's some around you, scattered and littered, where was what I was trying to say. Uh, so there's some slittered around you. Um, grab one, that's our gift to you. We just want you to see that we're not making any of this up. Verse 36, and as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened as though they saw a spirit. So who is it and what are they talking about, right? So this is the 11. Judas is now gone. This is the 11 sitting around together, hanging out. They've already heard the account of the women that went to the tomb, found it empty. They came running back. They, they've understood at some kind of theoretical level, but they thought they were all crazy. And then these guys had walked seven miles. The road to Emmaus is seven miles. They had walked seven miles with Jesus, not knowing who he was, until the Spirit opened up their eyes to see. It wasn't anything they had done, but, but God opened up their eyes to understand. And then here are these bros that ran back seven miles. Can you just imagine that for a day? You walked seven miles, and then you ran seven miles. Something is happening for these guys to run seven miles all the way back. They bust into the room where the disciples were sitting and they were talking about these things. So, so presumably these guys are still in the room as they're discussing and talking. Was this really Jesus? Is this really true? And then Jesus walks in the room. What does he say? Peace. Don't freak out. Don't scream. It's, it's me. And this is where the whole scene, and obviously they freaked out. Verse 38, and he said to them, why are you troubled and why did doubts arise in your hearts? Now can y'all just hear the patient tone in Jesus' voice? I mean, that's the thing that we see all throughout Luke. The other gospels are littered with um, just Jesus berating the Pharisees and going, you guys are fools, you're whitewashed tombs, you're idiots, I can't believe you believe this. But Luke shows us the softer side of Jesus that he was always forever patient. 
that he was wanting, he was drawing them to repentance. He was patient with them. And we see this even in the last moments. Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Verse 39, see my hands and my feet. That is, I myself touch me and you see. For spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. This wasn't some hallucination. This wasn't some uh, ghostly figure. This was proof that Jesus was raised from the dead. That he was standing in front of them. They were able to touch. I mean, this is, I don't know if y'all have seen like the felt board things where they touched his wounds and it's like, just kind of, it looks like an old scar, like a two-year-old scar. No, this was three days, right? I mean, this was still nasty scars that they were able to touch and see and experience. And what was their, I love their response, verse 41. And they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. Here's what's happening. They're running outside and slapping one another, pinching one another and going back in, touching the scars, running back out. I know I'm crazy. This has got to be crazy. Bro, slap me one more time. Walk back in. It's Jesus. I mean, the disbelieved for joy. I mean, this is just straight chaos going on in their minds. Some of you men that you're getting ready proposing, this is going to be that moment for you when you say it and the, the bride actually says yes and you don't believe her and you freak out about it. That there's no way that I deserve this. You're right. You don't deserve that girl. This is just, that's a microcosm of what's happening here. That for the first time they see him, they understand it and their disbelief for joy. They're marveling at what takes place because he's God. All of this is true. Everything that he had taught, the forgiveness for sins, that he can take the sins away, that he will destroy the temple and rebuild it. All of the things that he did, said, and modeled are now true because he's standing in the midst of them. Because they had seen someone raised from the dead, right? They'd seen Lazarus and they marveled, but, but that's because Jesus did it. Now they see Jesus doing what Jesus does because he's God, and it's proof right there in front of them. And so I just love the, the paradigm shift, the, the two storylines taking place, because you have these guys that are literally freaking out, I mean, just running all over the place. And you have Jesus going, hey, can I get some food? Like, I, I know I'm alive. You can keep touching my, my hands, all you, but I'm hungry. Now, part of that's just comical, but Jesus is doing this to prove a point. Can a ghost eat things? Like, it's kind of like Casper. Did y'all grow up with Casper? Okay, Casper, like, you could see food go down him and drinks go down. Like, no, this is a real flesh and blood man. But there's a deeper story here that's taking place that we'll get to in a little bit. Verse 44. Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I've spoken to you while still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses to these things. Now, I, I, I could preach 10 sermons on what Jesus just said. But primarily, let's, let's just focus on one part of this. Verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Now, now here's where we have to stop, and here's where we have to see, because Jesus just did this with the two guys walking down the road to Emmaus, that, that he's the one that opened their eyes. 
And that seems like a small detail, but if we start to flesh it out a little bit, it really shows us who's God in our life and who's not. That if it's ultimately up to me and you, if it's ultimately up to the disciples sitting in the room for them to understand, for them to, then, then we're gonna white knuckle it, we're gonna figure this thing out. I can do this, just give me the Bible, leave me alone, I'll figure all this out. I don't need anyone's help. But who does that make you? Your own God. That if you can do this on your own, you are now God. I mean, you start looking all through scriptures, why do we pray for wisdom if we can get wisdom on our own? Right? I mean, you start looking through all the things that Jesus instructs us, why do we take a Sabbath to show us that God can do it, we can't? So this detail is huge because it just said it in the verses before and it's saying it here that God is the one that opens up our mind, that God is the one that gives us the faith to see, the faith to believe. It's all a gift from God so that no man can boast. So what do you do then if you need more faith? Do you work hard or do you pray like crazy? What do you do then if you need more wisdom? Do you work hard or do you pray like crazy? Because it's up to us, we would have already figured it out. But it's God that opens up our eyes. We see this clearly through scripture. And now that their eyes are open, now that everything makes sense, that God has revealed himself to them, what does he do? Go, proclaim it to all the nations. You've been huddled up in this room ever since I've died trying to figure out what's next. Here it is, go, run, proclaim it everywhere. You are all now witnesses. Verse 49, and behold, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with the power from on high. And we're going to spend a lot of time on this in a second, but, but I just want to point out Matthew 28 says something very close to this in Jesus's departure. We know this is the great commission, go and make disciples, and we always feel guilty because we're not. But how he ends it is, remember, I'm with you always to the end of age. You're not doing this on your own. I'm, I'm sending a helper here. But stay put. Just hold on for a, a few more days until the helper comes. Verse 50. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Now I thought about this and, and try to come, how do I explain this? How do I teach this part? You, you just can't. God, was a, God called Jesus. Jesus was ascended into heaven. He was standing before them and now he's not. As mysteriously as it was that Jesus showed up in the manger in a cave now he's, he's gone. So, so there it is. We see the life. We see the birth. We see the life. We see the death. We see the resurrection. And we see the ascension. As mysterious as he showed up, now he's gone. Now as you're reading this, as I've been prepping for this, what is that first initial feeling that comes into your heart? Like, oh, that stinks. Man, I've walked for three years with this guy. He, he's, he's gone. What, what's next? That is not what scripture says, is it? And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. With great joy. They were losing their minds. They were constantly going to the temple. Acts later would say that the guys that have turned the world upside down are now here. 
that they've lost it. They've seen all that Christ has done and accomplished and who he is, that he is God, and they lose it. Nothing about these guys will ever be the same. So, what then do we say? If if we're gonna try to teach through this, but also put a bow on the book of Luke for us this morning, what then do we say? So here's my best attempt. We'll, We'll put it on the screen and we'll work through this together for the rest of the time. I'll just read it. Technology, man. That's good. So it'll be up there later. Mackenzie is literally the best sound person or uh, word person we have, so she'll figure it out. We are witnesses to the salvation of God, empowered by the Spirit to proclaim repentance and forgiveness in the name of Jesus Christ to the world, earning the right to do so through love, compassion, and mercy. So, so what is the big picture? What is the certainty that we have? I'll read it. One, here we go. One more time. We are witnesses to the salvation of God, empowered by the Spirit to proclaim repentance and forgiveness in the name of Jesus to the world, earning the right to do so through love, compassion, and mercy. This is what Jesus told us as he left. This is the model that he gave us while he was here. This is the certainty that we now have, that we are all witnesses to the salvation of God. So what does that mean? We'll just start there. We're all witnesses to the salvation of God. Witness here is in a legal, historical, and ethical sense. So it's a legal sense that that it happened, it took place. It's ethical. I I can't say it didn't happen, and it's historical. I I don't know where you guys are on the spectrum of belief here this morning, but you cannot argue this from a historical standpoint, that Jesus did not live and did not die, and there were not over 500 witnesses that saw him resurrected. You have to do something with. That's why every major religion in the world does something with Jesus. You have to. We are all witnesses, but witnesses gives us a huge witness to how we respond. Because see, if you're a witness to something, you don't actually do anything, do you? If we're witnessing something take place, are we part of it or are we observant of it? Because this is a huge clue for us. If we're witnesses to the salvation of God, that means we're witnesses to what God did in us, not what we did to us. And we understand this from a real practical level, right? I mean, in the days of camera phones, uh, we, we witness and we record everything. I've been to a couple concerts. I'm sure at graduation yesterday, it was the same way, right? Sporting events. We all want to prove that we witnessed something, but you weren't the guy that hit the grand slam. You weren't the guy or the girl that was walking across the stage. You weren't the one that was in the fight, You were just a witness of it. You observed what was taking place. So when we see here that we are witnesses to the salvation of God, we're just given a testimony of what God did in us and through us. That we are now witnesses. This has nothing to do with what we've done or how hard we've tried or what we've accomplished. We are witnesses to what God has done in us and through us. And this is massive here. This, this shift in us where Jesus says in verse 48, we are all witnesses. Now I'm just going to go ahead and lay my cards on the table real fast. Um, Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player of all time. There's no, there's no argument there. But LeBron James, pretty big deal, right? 
Nike did this genius campaign a couple of years ago. Do y'all remember? We were all what? Witnesses. We were all witnesses to all that LeBron was doing. Now he's out because he can't handle an injury. Bye-bye, crybaby, right? But any, any LeBron fans in here? Don't mean, I'm going to offend you with the gospel, not with my sports commentator. But we saw Nike post this everywhere in Cleveland. And ev- I mean, you couldn't watch TV without having a Nike swoosh. We were all witnesses because we got to watch something miraculous take place. But that is nothing compared to the fact that a loving God sent Christ, his only son, to be crucified to take our place so that we can be made right with him. To that we are all witnesses. That if Christ is in you, it has nothing to do with what you've done, but only what Christ has done in you, that we are all witnesses. But you're only a witness if you talk about it, right? Like you, you, you have to speak to be a witness. If I witnessed a crime and I went to Lumpkin County and said, hey, listen, I saw this take place, but I'm not going to tell you about it. Are they going to think I'm a credible witness? Of course not. There's going to be some confusion there. We are all witnesses to the salvation that God has given us if we are now believers. So with that in mind, what then do we do? We are all witnesses to the salvation of God, empowered by the Spirit to proclaim repentance and forgiveness through faith in the name of Jesus. We are empowered by the Spirit. Now, we have to track on to this because in verse 49, Jesus tells us that, behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. I'm sending you the Spirit. In John 16, Jesus would tell us that it's better for him to leave so that we can have the Spirit. Now, I've I've laid my cards on the table before. I think we got the raw end of the deal sometimes, if I'm just being honest. If I had Jesus' flesh and blood right next to me or the Spirit inside of me, I think I would always choose that because I'm an instant gratification guy. I want Jesus. I want to touch the wounds. I want to hang out with him. I want to watch him as he ridicules people. I want to watch him as he heals people. I want to see that take place. But he goes, no, no, no. because of what I've done, there's going to be greater things done through you. It's better that I leave so that you have the Spirit. And the main point of that, or one of the main points of that, is because we all have the Spirit. Jesus was a man that was going to be here. He could be nowhere else. But if we're empowered by the Spirit, then we all have God inside of us. One of the things that just kind of struck me, um, my wife has been pregnant four times. We have four children. It's a beautiful process. Not really. It's disgusting. But um, one of the things that struck me through her pregnancies was this. And I've, I've never been able to experience this because I'm a man. But she said, during the times of pregnancy, I was never alone. I was never alone. I always knew that I had someone inside of me. I was never alone. And that kind of intimacy is what we have with the Father. And Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones put this this way. I love this quote. He compared this experience to a father who swoops his five-year-old son into his arms and whirls him around saying, you're my son and I love you. In that moment, the boy is no more his son, legally speaking, than he was the moment before. But caught up in his father's arms, he feels his sonship more intimately. The Spirit of God, Paul says, when he fills us, sheds upon God's love in our hearts, making the Spirit rise up in our hearts to say, Abba, Father, 
daddy, father. So the spirit that's in us doesn't make us any more of Christ's sons and daughters, but it breeds a level of intimacy like none other, that we are never alone, that he's always with us wherever we go. I mean, that's why we could say, Romans 8, if God's for me, who can be against me? I'm, I'm fine. There's nothing that can hurt me because I always have the spirit inside of me. This should create a boldness in us to fear no man, to fear nothing, to do whatever he's called us to do because we've been empowered by the spirit. So how do we witness the things of God, the salvation that's take place only through empowering of the spirit? That's all that can happen. But here's where things get a little wonky. And again, all these things, yes, I said wonky. That's a theological term for you. Um, all these things I wish I could just elaborate on more. But let me give maybe just one word of warning here. John 16, in that same passage that Jesus is saying, it's better for me to leave so that you can have the Spirit. John 16, 14 says this. He will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you that the main role of the Spirit is to glorify Jesus. He only says what he hears God say. Now, now why does this matter? Because we live in a day and age where the Spirit, in a lot of ways, gets really elevated to an unhelpful, sinful level. And, and, and I'm not trying to, to, well, maybe I am, but, but just the region that we live in, I'll just put it that way, the region and the country that we live in, that we're constantly wanting this miraculous feeling, this experience, this thing that takes place. But what we don't understand is that's creating an idol, that's making something of the spirit that the spirit never was intended to do. I mean, there's a massive revival, I say massive, a massive revival going on just a few towns away from us. And when you listen to all the stories and what's taking place in there, you never hear the name of Jesus lifted up. You, you never hear the glory of God being manifested in big ways. All this talked about is just experiences. Here's how I felt. If the spirit, if the voice of the Lord, right, is contradictory to scripture, that is not the voice of the Lord, ever. And so we have to be super careful of, of things or group or churches or organizations. I, I think we just kind of fall into this trap of, if God's name's in it, it must be of God. If God's name, I mean, that seems kind of spiritual, so that, that all is in the same thing. No, Jesus is very clear. Wide is the path that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way to lead to salvation, and almost no one finds it. We must constantly be discerning everything that we hear and we're taught and we see, because we cannot raise up the Spirit higher than he should be. All that the Spirit does is points us to Christ. I'm getting passionate. I'm throwing stuff now. And if it doesn't, we need to be very careful. Satan is the great deceiver. He doesn't have to get us to buy into these massive lies, but just redirect us just a little bit as we go. And who we're gonna end up worshiping is ourselves in idolatry, not the God of the Bible. So he's gonna empower us with the spirit, but that empowerment doesn't mean that we can go just boast about the spirit and do all these things that only resolve the spirit, but the spirit points us back to Christ constantly. That's all he does. So be weary, church, of the supernatural ministries and, and all the things that you hear or worship or, or miracles that take place that aren't rooted themselves in scripture, because that's not the work of the spirit. But now that we have the spirit inside of us, what then do we do? What do we proclaim? 
It's clear here. Jesus is very clear. We are empowered by the Spirit to proclaim repentance and forgiveness through faith in the name of Jesus alone. Flip back with me to Luke 13. I just want to remind us of, of a story that Jesus told with this idea of repentance. We have to be very careful of how we word this, how we say this, and this is why it's imperative that we are empowered by the Spirit. I think that the word repentance, is, as we get a little new agey, we get a little older, that, that word just has a lot of negative connotations, but it is a sweet word to us that we can change our minds to redirect ourselves towards the gospel. Luke 13, we're going to pick it up in verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered to them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? This is Jesus talking, verse 3. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus is not mincing words here. Unless you turn from your evil ways, unless you repent, will all likewise perish. Verse 4, of those 18 on, on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he teaches this parable to explain it to us in verse 6. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, but I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be used up? Excuse me. Why should it use up the ground? Verse 8, and he answered to them, Sir, let it alone this year until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, I can cut it down. Faith and forgiveness through the repentance of sins. And if we don't proclaim that, then we will perish. We will be cut down. So we've been empowered by the Spirit to preach that message to those around us. Is that a reality for us? Because Jesus knew it. Is that a reality for us that repentance, this, sorry, the lack of repentance leads to perishness, that we will die, that eternity is coming for all of us? And that if we are empowered by the Spirit but don't preach the message of repentance through faith and forgiveness in Jesus, then what does that mean for our brothers and sisters around us? What does that mean for our neighbors and our classmates? What does that mean for their eternity's sake? So we're going to preach this message of forgiveness. We're going to proclaim it to the world, earning the right to do so through love, compassion, and mercy. Now this word here, which is not there, this word here is world. And we have to stop here and kind of talk about this because I think it's easy for us to, to glance over this one. That Jesus came to the world, right? That he was perfect and he came, it's called incarnation. That he came to walk around men and women like us. That he came to the world. Do you think that was an uncomfortable process for him? I mean, you're constantly in the heavenlies, that you have nothing wrong, that you're perfectly in control of everything. He gives up all of that to come walk on this world with sinners and pagans like us. 
Luke 5.29 puts it perfectly. And Levi, who was a tax collector and disciple, made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisee and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So we're supposed to proclaim this message of forgiveness and hope through Jesus Christ to the world. But we need to be very clear who the world is because it's not people like me and you. It's the sick, it's the downcast, it's the messy. I mean, I don't know how much time you've spent in hospitals, you've been around sick people, but sick people are sick. That if you interact with them, you're gonna get bloody. If you interact with them, you're gonna get messy. I mean, I just find it interesting that Jesus was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard because of the people he hung out with. That he came for the world. Does the church ever get that reputation? Do you, do I ever get that reputation? Have we ever been called anything because of the people that we're choosing to interact with and serve and love the world? Or are we just this Christian clique that's all surrounded by our Christian friends and want nothing to do with the actual world around us? We have to stop and wrestle with this. We cannot faithfully go through the book of Luke and not see right here that he called Levi a tax collector that was hated by the Jews around him. That he empowered women, he, was, he brought women with him, that he was ridiculed for that. I mean, there's still rumors today, right, that, that Jesus and Mary Magdalene had this little affair going on because all the time that he spent with her, it's hogwash. But because the people that he chose to surround his life with, he was accused of that. Because he was part, he had a mission, he had a goal to be in the world but not of the world. That if I'm here for the certain time, I've got to bring as many people with me as possible. Now, just true confession here. I was a band nerd in high school. Anyone else? I know you can't tell. I mean, don't look at me. I'm perfection in front of you. But in high school, I wasn't. Uh, I was, uh, but I was in the drum line. I wasn't actually in the band. We were way cooler. I was going to brag about you in a minute, but scratching that part out. So anyways, we had this leadership thing that we were going through, and for whatever reason, I don't remember all that was taught that week, but, but there's this one lesson that just really rocked me, I think because it's rooted in the gospel, even though they didn't realize it, that no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Have you guys heard this? That no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. And we see this so evident in the life of Jesus, that he never, you cannot show me an example in Scripture where he did not take care of a physical need and the emotional need that he didn't walk into and say, I see that you're hurting, I see that you're broken, let me heal this, and oh, by the way, come follow me. He was constantly doing both. And I don't think that this band director came up with this, I'm sure that's old, but it has to be rooted in scripture. That because of Jesus's ministry, he had handled both the spiritual and the emotional needs because sick people are messy. The world is broken and busted and it's gonna take time, energy, and effort. But church, are we willing to roll up our sleeves and do it? Can I just lay, again, just brutal honest for a second? Um, 
over this last year, the church has grown a, a pretty fair amount. And here's what I know that can, that can potentially happen with that, that the more we grow, the more inward focus that we become. And we start fighting over things that never were intended to fight about. And we start disagreeing and bickering over leadership styles or, or this statement that was made that we're so consumed with the inside things of the church that we totally forget that there's a lost, dying world around us, the sick and broken and needy that are desperate for the hope of the gospel, but we're too busy arguing about stupid things within the church. I mean, you look at church history, it's riddled everywhere. I mean, I'm not trying to call out anything, but not too far from here, there's church number one and there's church number two. Literally the same name of the church, but they split over who knows what. What message does that send about the kingdom? That we're going to fight over things and we're going to neglect all the world around us because we're not willing to roll up our sleeves and get after it. That we're not willing to be accused of sin that's not part of our hearts, but because who we're hanging out with, who we're spending time with. Here's the part that I was going to mention about Caleb. I'm going to still do it because it's an awesome story. When I first met Caleb, um, Caleb was best friends with the atheistic society on campus. And that raised some red flags for me and Caleb. I don't know where he actually stood in his faith because of the people that he were hanging out with. But he was so faithful to love and serve and encourage those men, bringing them to missional communities, bringing them to the gathering. So what I quickly learned about Caleb was, no, that dude's on fire for the Lord because of what he's doing with his time and energy and effort, it proves that he's being faithful, he's modeling himself after Jesus. That he doesn't have time to hang out with just the Christian elite, the, the religious, the ones that are just gonna sit around and talk and do nothing. Caleb Lemonak was doing something, and he still is. So what are we doing? Who are we spending time with? Listen, one of our pillars is community. I'm not saying that we should neglect the fold, we should neglect the body and only spend time with those around us, the world around us. I'm not, we have to keep it in balance for sure, but we gotta be honest with ourselves. Where are we individually in that pendulum? Are we balanced or are we all the way over here? Can I tell you just one of the sweetest moments of this year for me? I'm, I'm kind of, May is always a reflective time for me where I just kind of think back on the year, what happened, what went well, what didn't. Here's one of the sweetest moments, and, and I don't think anyone else called it. It was one of those times, it's just in our missional community. I don't think anyone noticed it, anyone ever really heard it, but I can't get this girl's voice out of my brain. We're sitting around talking about the next week we're gonna take off as an MC and we're just gonna be encouraged to go spend time with the world around us. Go find someone to eat lunch with or dinner with or, or something, just pursue someone. And this godly lady in our MC said, look, I, I've gotta confess something. I, I've, I've surrounded myself with believers. I don't know that I know an unbeliever. Can you guys help me with this? That was a deep plea for, I see it. I see it in scripture, I understand it. And I'm repenting, I'm changing of that, but can you guys help me? So in that moment, everyone's talking about what they were doing, I think that moment was just lost, but in, in me, I'm like trying not to cry because here's that girl that's going, I know, I know what God has asked me to do and I wanna do a better job at it. The self-awareness is key in that first moment of, I've got to see, I've got to grow, I've got to flourish in this. That's, that's repentance, that's saying, okay, I gotta change the way I think about this so that I change my action. Now I know, listen, because I, I was doing this as I was writing my sermon, I know some of you in this room are already arguing with me, of, but Gabe, you don't know my schedule. 
You don't, you don't know my time. You don't know my availability. You don't know what I'm doing. You don't know about this. You don't know about that. You're right, I don't. But hear me, if you're too busy for the gospel, you're too busy. And I'd argue that if we, I mean, one of the things the elders made me do is track my time. And what I saw through that was, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> I do a lot of dumb stuff throughout my day. <coughs> that if we're faithful, we're going to be accountable for how we spent our time on this earth. We've got to be addressing this. Because none of us are too busy. If we're too busy to proclaim the name of Jesus to the world around us, church, we're too busy. We've got to learn to cut things out and figure it out because Jesus was drawn to these people like a magnet. Let us pray over that. Let us become those people. Now this is where, if you're anything like me, this is where I get really frustrated with pastors. Here's the call, here's the challenge. We see this in the life of Jesus. Now go do it, go figure it out. But Jesus doesn't leave us that high and dry. Three years ago, really it was about three and a half years ago now, um, I read a book that this whole idea came from by Tim Chester called A Meal with Jesus. And one of his arguments was, or the, or the main premise, was in the book of Luke, Jesus was either at a meal, coming to a meal, or going to a meal. That the majority of Jesus' ministry took place around a dinner table. Let me just read a few, right? Luke 5, tax collectors and sinners at the home of Levi. Luke chapter 7, Jesus is anointed at the home of Simon of the Pharisee during a meal. Luke 9, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Luke 10, Jesus eats in the home of Mary and Martha. Luke 11, Jesus condemns the Pharisees and teachers of the law at a meal. Luke 14, Jesus is at a meal when he urges people to invite the poor to their meals instead of their friends. Luke 19, Zacchaeus, we know that story about what happened at his meal. Luke 22, the Last Supper. Luke 24, he eats with the guys from Emmaus. And Luke 24, he eats with his disciples. So how did Jesus proclaim the goodness and faithfulness of Jesus, or of himself, the forgiveness of sins? He did it through a meal. Almost every time Jesus was eating meals with people. So that's why we don't reference it a ton, because after 90 sermons, it, you just kind of get tired of saying the same thing. But that's why we entitled this whole thing, A Meal with Jesus. Have we sat down to commune first with Jesus? And if we have, then are we bringing people in? That all of this can take place around a meal, one of the most intimate parts of your home and your life. Do you eat meals together? Well, well Pastor, I don't know where to start. Well, you eat 21 meals a day, a week. Excuse me. <laughs> Whoa. Turn your Bibles. We're going to talk about gluttony for a second. <laughs> 21 meals a week, right? We have, we have time, church. We, we eat we see the example of Jesus that his ministry revolved around a meal. So I think there's going to be a quote, right? This is a rather long one, so I put it up on here. But, but this is kind of the, the premise of Tim Chester's book. What are the Christian community's meals for? They achieve many things. They express so much of God's grace. They provide a glimpse of what it's like to live under God's reign. They express and reinforce the community that Christ has created through the cross. They are a foretaste of the new creation. They are a great context in which we invite unbelievers so they encounter the reality of God among us. But they are not for these things. It is a trick question. 
Everything else, creation, redemption, mission, is for this, that we might eat together in the presence of God. God created the world so we might eat with him. The food we consume, the table around at which we sit, and the companions gathered with us have at their end our communion with one another and with God. The Israelites were redeemed to eat with God on the mountain, and we are redeemed for the great messianic banquet that we anticipate when we eat together as Christian community. We proclaim Christ in mission so that others might hear the invitation and join the feast. Creation, redemption, and mission all exist so that this meal can take place. So, so what is he getting at here? That we live in between the already but not yet. We see Jesus serve his disciples just a few chapters before the communion, the, the last Passover, the first communion, eating this meal together, saying, this is my body that's broken. This is my blood spilt out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And we fast forward to Revelation where there's going to be the great marriage supper of the Lamb. Where we're going to feast together one day in eternity, but we're stuck in the middle. So here we are, we're trying to draw people through using these meals on earth so that we can see them at that great banquet day in heaven. Because if they're not there, they're there in hell and there's no middle ground. So we use meals as a foreshadowing of what's to come being the great banquet. But who are we inviting in? Who are we bringing to the table? There's this great story in the Old Testament with Jonathan's son after he died in battle and David invited him in to the table because David and Jonathan made this covenant together that if either one of them should die, that they have to take care of their sons and daughters. And so Jonathan's son was lame. He had busted up feet. He had no right to come into the king's table. But we see that David invites him in and every single day keeps inviting him in to sit at the table, to eat, to commune with King David. And that's a foreshadowing of us. That we have no right to eat at the table of the Lord. That we have no right to take this communion. That we have no right that Christ should have invited us in, but he did. And if we're witnesses to that, then who are we bringing in? Who are the lame? Who are the busted? Who are the sick? Who are the wounded that we can draw in? Because that is the purpose of the gospel of Luke. That is our story that we were once far from God and he has drawn us and he's invited us into the table. And if he's invited us in, how selfish, how unrepentant are we if we don't draw the world in and we don't tell them the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is who we are. That is what we do. We are communion. Of, or we are people together eating communion, celebrating it so that we can go and give a foretaste of what's to come of the great banquet feast in heaven. We get to sit together and, with Christ and enjoy. But we're here now. We're not there, we're here. So the question then turns into, as we finish, Luke, as we literally shut the book, who's gonna be with us? Who are we bringing with us to this feast, to this banquet? So as we take communion this morning, let us remember that, let us pray over that thanking God that he has invited us to the table. And as we leave here, let us pray and consider who we can invite to that table as well. So let us pray. And Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for Luke 
being convicted to write out all that he had gathered, all the information that he had learned from all the eyewitnesses. That he gave certainty to Theopolis for what he knew, for what he had heard. So this morning, Father, let us have that certainty. That we were the world, that we were the sick, wounded people that had no hope, that had no chance. Father, we were the lame, we were the weak. And Jesus is clear that's why you came. You said that it wasn't the well that needs the physician, but it's the sick. And that's who we were. But in love and grace, you invited us to the table. When we deserved none of it, you brought us in. And you granted us forgiveness by your work on the cross. And you've empowered us, you've given us the spirit so that we can boldly proclaim the good news of the gospel, that we were not welcome at the table. But through your work on the cross, we've been brought in. And so, Father, would we leave here knowing that we are all witnesses to what you've done in our hearts, that you have saved us, that you have redeemed us, and now you've entrusted us with the message of reconciliation. You've given us the task of bringing others to the table as well. Father, because we look, we know what Revelation says, we look into the future and know that there's gonna be a banquet feast at the end of time. And we're desperate for those around us to join us at that table. But Father, the first step is inviting them to our home and to our lives. So God, would you convict us? It's far too easy to play it comfortable. It's far too easy to, to build our schedules with the things and the people that we enjoy, to live a life of comfort where we're in control, to, to minimize the work of the Spirit in our souls because we don't think we need Him. But Father, how can we faithfully read through the book of Luke and draw that conclusion? God, we pray that you would give us boldness that you would give us courage, that you would give us opportunities today. Father, we love because you first loved us. So let this never become a task or a, a duty for us to perform, but as we take this communion, let us remember what you've done first for us and from that overflow, from that heart of thanksgiving. Let us go and serve and love and welcome those who are far from you to the table. So whenever, church, our hearts are ready, when we examine our souls, communion will be open and we can remember and celebrate what God has done for us and we can be challenged to do that for the world. In your name we pray, amen.